About 525 Negroes had left Brown's Chapel and walked six blocks to cross Pettus Bridge and the Alabama River. They were young and old, and they carried an assortment of packs, bedrolls, and lunch sacks. Troopers were waiting 300 yards beyond the end of the bridge. Behind the troopers were dozens of possummen, 15 of them on horses, and perhaps 100 white spectators. Can you swim? I'm in a swimming pool for black folk where I come from. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was a scene from a movie called Selma. It came out in 2014. It was nominated for Best Picture. It tells the story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, planning, organizing, leading a march to Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, the march to Montgomery was to protest unjust uh, laws and practices that made it dangerous and difficult for black people to vote in the Jim Crow South. The march started in the city of Selma, and as they marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, about 70 million Americans watched later that night on the nightly news as that bridge turned into the site of the brutal, bloody Sunday beatings. Over 500 of these civil rights marchers uh, were beaten. And this was a turning point in the civil rights movement in our country. Uh, opened the eyes of a nation. And people saw things they could not unsee. Tomorrow's a national holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is a day for us to remember the full history of the reality of this country. It's a day for us to be reminded that there's still plenty of work to do as we continue marching down the road to freedom and equality for all people. Here we are at a worship service. It's a good time for us to be reminded and to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., first and foremost, he was a Baptist preacher. And so Dr. King's dream for a world when uh, people would be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, 
That's a dream that comes right out of the pages of the Bible. More than being the dream of Dr. King, this is God's dream for you and me. This is God's dream for this world. And over and over and over again, God is, in the pages of Scripture, talking about this, uh, casting a vision for this, helping us dream about the way things could be, the way things God, the way God wants things to be. Uh, when God speaks through the Old Testament prophets, God is doing two things simultaneously. First of all, God is painting a picture of the way things are. Here's what's wrong in the world today. And then the second thing God always does when God speaks to us through the prophets is God does some vision casting. Uh, God says, let's dream a little bit. Here's the way things could be. This is what it would look like if we had a, a new day, a new way. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 is where we'll be hanging out for a bit today. Uh, Isaiah is in the Old Testament, kind of the second half of the Old Testament. It's one of the longest books in all of the Bible. It shows up, if you're looking for it, a couple of books after Psalms. And Isaiah is written roughly 2,500 years ago. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it's almost entirely God's critique of the nation of Israel. Here's what's wrong with the nation of Israel today. Uh, but a couple of places you get this a taste, a, a, a dream, a vision for the future and the way things could be. A lot of the Old Testament prophecy around the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah, it's in those first 39 chapters of, of Isaiah. But mostly it's critique. Isaiah chapter 1, filled with critiques. And in the middle of Isaiah chapter 1, there's a verse that, even if you're not a church person or a Bible person, it's very possible you've heard this verse before. I will put it up on the screen and let's read it out loud together. Read it with me. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Isn't that a great verse? We, we love that verse. We love verses that remind us of God's love for us, God's forgiveness, uh, verses that remind us of grace. We love singing songs that remind us God loves us, that, that God is a God of grace because we know who we are. We know we're far from perfect. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've fallen short of God's glorious standard. And so we love to be reminded, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And God is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we see this idea of, of God loving people, God forgiving people all over, uh, from cover to cover in the pages of the Bible. Now, one of the interesting things that happens when we read a verse like this and we're sitting in a church in America, we almost always read this verse through the lens of individualism. Like, though my sins are like scarlet, God will make me as white as snow. And certainly that's a biblical idea and God does that sort of thing. But in the context, the larger context of what's being talked about here in Isaiah chapter 1, this isn't God calling out individual sin. This is God giving an indictment on the sins of a nation. I'll kind of walk through... Uh, the context before and after verse 18 to help us see this. Again, you can follow along if you want to or, or just listen. Now, here's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Skip down to verse 4. Oh, what a sinful nation they are. Loaded down with a burden of guilt, they are evil people. 
Corrupt children who have rejected the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Skip all the way down to verse 11. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Keep skipping through Isaiah chapter 1. We get to verse 21. See how Jerusalem, once so faithful, has become a prostitute. Once the home of justice and righteousness, she is now filled with murderers. Verse 23, your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them love bribes and demand payoffs, but they refuse to defend the cause of orphans or fight for the rights of widows. And then finally, verse 31. The strongest among you will disappear like straw. Their evil deeds will be the spark that sets it on fire. They and their evil works will burn up together, and no one will be able to put out the fire. Welcome to hope, everybody. Uh, There are some sermons that are kind of fun to preach. Last weekend was a fun sermon to preach. If you want to hear a fun sermon, go to the podcast or the YouTube page and uh, listen to last week's sermon. Uh, This sermon, not so fun. There's going to be a lot in the message today. It's not easy for me to say, not easy for us to uh, listen to, to internalize, but we've got to do it. We have to do it. We're in a message series called Five Habits of Highly Effective Christians. Habit one, gathering together for worship. Habit two, uh, always growing. Today we're going to be looking at the power of love. And if we are serious about loving the way Jesus calls us to love, the way Jesus commands us to love, then we will have some confessing to do. We have some growing up to do. There are some things that we are not seeing clearly. Uh, Hopefully as you were listening or following along as we went through those verses from Isaiah chapter 1, hopefully it became pretty clear to you this is an indictment of God on the nation of Israel. It's like God is saying, All of society has become rotten and corrupt. It's like every thread that makes up the fabric of society, there's something wrong with every thread. Let's start with the worship thread. God spends a lot of time in chapter 1 talking about the the religious life in Isaiah's day, and it is not good, God says. Here's verse 12. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Uh, Parade through my courts. The courts being talked about here are the temple courts. In our day, in America, we we love to talk about the separation of church and state and religious freedom. And in Isaiah's day, it was a very different kind of context. The religious life centered in on what was happening at the temple, but there was much in that entire society that was centered in and connected to and woven together with life in the temple, religious life of the cult. So you think about the legal institutions or the justice institutions in Israel in Isaiah's day, they would gather, the lawmakers would meet at the temple. And that's where they would talk and they would discuss and they would come up with the laws for society, but these were also religious laws all woven together. The political institution woven together with this. The temple had guards, temple guards, the uh, military institute. It's all connected with and flowed from, centered in on the temple. And what God is saying in Isaiah chapter 1, it's all a mess. It's all corrupt. It's all wrong. All of society is coming apart at the seams. And, and God is kind of saying, it needs to. 
It just all needs to be torn down, burned down, is what he says there at the end of um, Isaiah chapter 1, and then rebuilt. Remember, God's doing two things at once when God speaks to us through the prophets. Number one, God says, here's the picture of the way things are, and it is not good. There's a lot that is wrong. So let's fast forward 2,500 years from Isaiah's day to our day. Anything happened this week that caused you to say, man, there seems like there's some things that are wrong in our world today. Anything that makes you say, it seems like there's something rotten, something stinks, something is corrupt. When we spend some time actually stopping to think about these things, sometimes uh, it, it can start to overwhelm us and we're like, ah, I don't like thinking about that stuff, but we need to think about it. Just last week, here in central Iowa, last weekend, uh, there was a church in Des Moines, Burns United Methodist Church, a historically black church, and they received a bomb threat. Uh, the Des Moines police had to investigate it, and the police said, it was a racially motivated bomb threat. Thankfully, they found no bombs. But last week, the members of that church, uh, out of precaution, they did not gather in their building for worship. They worshiped online. They, they thought it was too dangerous. It was not safe to gather together for worship. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a society, being a part of a society where some people are not safe to gather together for worship? Can you imagine being a part of a society where we send our kids to school knowing that a couple of times a year they're going to go through active shooter drills and we're just like, yeah, it's just the way it is. Can you imagine watching the news, reading the newspaper, paying attention to that stuff, and about every month you see stories of law enforcement officials rescuing dozens of people who've been human trafficked. And we see it on the news about every month and it's not even a blip on our radar. We just kind of gloss over it and move on. There are massive things that are wrong, that are not good in our culture, in our society, and we don't like to think about it. It's too hard. It's too, it fills us with worry and anxiety and fear and doesn't feel safe if we spend too much time thinking about it. But every once in a while, we've got to think about it. And maybe we're more comfortable thinking about things that feel unsafe and things that fill us with fear that maybe aren't so big. Just a, I don't know, a general fear of the future or fear of failure, fear of being alone, fear that nothing's ever going to change, fear that things are changing too fast, too quick, I can't keep up. I don't know what it is that fills you with fear. I don't know what it is in your life that feels dangerous or unsafe, but in a room like this, at a time like this, Plenty of people have gathered here filled with worry, fear, anxiety. And, and when we start to think about these things, it, it can be easy to get ourselves to a point where we're wondering, okay, all this stuff's going on. This is my reality. There's a lot that's not good. There's a lot that's wrong. Where's God in all of this? Does God see? Does God notice? D does God care? And it can be easy to get to a point where we believe, no, God's just kind of absent. Jesus makes it clear nothing could be further from the truth. One time in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus asked, hey, how much are sparrows going for today? One copper coin was the answer. Not much. Not very valuable. Pretty inexpensive, pretty cheap. Anybody can buy a sparrow. It's true in our day, it's true in, in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus said, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing about it, seeing it, caring about it. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God 
than a whole flock of sparrows. I asked Kyle Rex if he would come out and sing a song for us based on Jesus' words here in Matthew 10. This is a song that I think can help us stay grounded in reality. Grounded in reality. Reality is there's a lot in this world that's troublesome, that is not good. But that's not fullness of reality. Reality also is there's hope. There's a new day. There's a better way because of Jesus. Why should I feel Thanks, Kyle. Through the prophets, God's doing two things at once. God's pointing out, here's what's wrong, here's what's troubling, here's what's not good. But always, always God offers a solution. Here's the way forward. Here's what we're going to try to do next to bring about, to realize this dream, this vision that God has for the world. And through the rest of the message, I want to kind of shift gears here and spend the rest of our time talking about that solution. And, and to get started moving in that direction, let's remind ourselves what we talked about last week, we, we talked about uh, this, the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we uh, discovered that the Hebrew understanding, uh, the word that gets used for strength there, can maybe best be translated muchness. 
Love the Lord your God with all your muchness. And we encouraged you to leave here and spend last week just sprinkling dashes of muchness everywhere you went. Like yesterday when my wife and I were shoveling the driveway and our neighbor Tyler came by with his ATV and a plow and we got that sucker done. He sprinkled a whole lot of muchness uh, to clean out that driveway. It was great. We also talked a little bit about agape love, the New Testament word uh, for love. There's a really cool website called The Bible Project. And what they've done at The Bible Project They've gotten biblical scholars and theologians, and they've connected them with creative filmmakers. And so they make these relatively short videos to help us understand uh, complicated, deep theological ideas and, and biblical concepts that we really need to know. So I want you to watch a little bit of the video that they made to help us understand agape love. And as you watch this, uh, remember, God's got a vision and a dream And how does agape love play into that? Take a look. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew that is Aramaic in which the word for love is rahmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important. To love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important? Loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people, and vice versa, they're inseparable. Our Bible reading for today, 1 John chapter 4, says we love because God first loved us. And part of what we see when we think about that is love is this continuous, dynamic, infinite flow. It starts with God. God loves us, we receive that love, and then we share God's love. In return, we love God and we love our neighbor. The two are inseparable. And our job as followers of Jesus is to keep love in circulation. Receive that love from God and then keep it going. Love the people around us. But sometimes we do things, we say things, uh, things happen that uh, stops this flow of love. Again, from our Bible reading in 1 John chapter 4, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. Two things that God is doing at the same time through the prophets. Number one, here's the problem. Here's the picture of what's wrong today. And then number two, here's the picture of what things could be. Here's the dream. Here's the vision. Isaiah chapter 1 is 
the critique. Here's the problem. You turn the page to Isaiah chapter 2 and you start to get a taste of the way things could be. I'll, I'll start in verse 3. And people from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There, God will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. The critique, the problem, it's all focused on the nation of Israel. But the solution is many nations, all the nations of the world, coming to learn God's ways and walk in God's paths. And as that happens, if that could happen, what else might start to happen? God keeps on painting this picture. Here's verse 4, it's on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Now, if you uh, grew up in this country in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you probably heard this verse being sung on the radio. It became an anti-war anthem. They turned it into a song, an anti-war anthem. And a lot of uh, recording artists recorded their version of this song. I'm going to lay down my heavy load down by the riverside. Ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. And certainly part of God's vision for the way things could be, the way things should be in this world, would be a world that is at peace. A world that's free from the horror and the violence of war. How do we get to that kind of place? As people, as nations all around the world, hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah chapter 1 is the problem. God says, Here, here's the problem. And then Isaiah chapter 2, we start to get this idea of, here's the way things could be. Now, people who are helping us understand exactly what does this mean? How are we supposed to interpret this? Biblical scholars, as they try to help us understand what is God saying through the prophets, they talk sometimes about this idea of prophetic imagination. Prophetic imagination, where God is like, people, would you just be willing to dream with me for a little bit? Let's get wildly creative. Let's dream about what, what kind of world do you want to leave for your children? What kind of world do you want to leave for your grandchildren? I mean, if you could dream big, audacious, wildly creative dreams about what that world would look like, what, what might it look like? And maybe it would look like instead of all of this energy that we spend on dominance, all this energy that we spend on conflict and violence, what if we could take all of that energy that we spend thinking about how can we conquer our enemies and instead we could channel that energy and we could use it to beat our swords into plowshares? What's a plowshare? It's a farming implement. And in the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament context, when you start talking about agriculture and farming, there, there are specific ideas connected to that. Like anytime you till the soil and plant a seed and a, a crop grows and you harvest the crop, in the Hebrew Old Testament understanding of that, part of the idea being communicated is there will be enough. There is enough. Remember, they're an agrarian culture a subsistence culture. Each year they wanted to get just enough to be able to survive until the next uh, planting and the next harvest. Do we just have enough to survive? Is it going to be enough sunshine? Is there going to be enough rain that we'll be able to grow the crops and the earth will produce what we need just enough to get by? 
And so in the Hebrew mindset, every table was an altar. Because every time you sat down to eat, it was this reminder. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the earth that God created, God created so that it would produce all we need so we all have enough. I go back to Isaiah chapter 1, and God's giving this critique, and we get to verse 17. In verse 17, God says, in the middle of the critique, all these bad things that you are doing, learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. So the critique is, society has become unjust. And then chapter 2 is this vision, this picture of a society, a just society. Now, when we think about justice... We almost always, in our context, we think of justice in terms of legal justice. Biblically speaking, justice is a whole lot bigger than that. It includes legal justice, absolutely. But maybe the, the best way to think about it, anytime you're reading through the Old Testament prophets and you see the word justice, in your mind just start thinking enough, enough, enough. A just society is a society where everyone has enough. Enough food, enough clothing, enough shelter, enough safety, enough access to whatever they need access to in order to flourish in that society. An unjust society, an unjust society is when people have turned their backs. They've closed their eyes. They've closed their ears. They don't hear the cry. They don't see the oppression of people for whom the system does not work. Isaiah talks about this, but he's not the only prophet in the scriptures that talks about this. Uh, Amos talks about it as well. Amos Chapter 5, verse 24 says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, he's writing to all of us through God's living and active word, but his initial audience was people living in Israel, a, a desert, a high desert kind of region where water was scarce. There's never enough water, which is why it's a big deal when Jesus says, I'm the water of life. If you're thirsty, come to me. I have water for you. You drink the water that I give you. You'll never be thirsty again. And people are like, what? We want that kind of water. Here's Amos saying, what if there was enough? An ever-flowing stream. What if there was enough water? What if there was enough righteousness? What if there was enough justice? What if that's the way our society was defined? If you've heard this verse before, Amos 5.24, you probably heard it from Martin Luther King Jr., it's in his I Have a Dream speech. It's in another speech that he gives called uh, Where Do We Go From Here? It's in his letter from a Birmingham jail. If it's been a while or if you've never read King's letter from a Birmingham jail, today and tomorrow it's the time to do it. Just Google it and read through it and think about the things that he is, the, the things he's pointing out that are wrong and the vision that he has for how things could be and the way his faith in Jesus Christ is leading him to that kind of place. In the final speech that King gives, the day before he's murdered, he gives a speech called, I've been to the mountaintop, thinking about Moses, right? Moses is leading the people of Israel to the promised land, but Moses does not get to enter the promised land. He dies before the people get there. And before Moses dies, God takes him up on top of a mountain, and he's able to look into the promised land. And he's able to see the place where the dream is going to be realized. So King gives a speech called, I've been to the mountaintop. He references Amos 5.24, the day before his death. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
justice and injustice. Martin Luther King Jr. is a modern-day prophet. Here's what's wrong with the way things are going today, and here's the dream, here's the vision for the way things could be. And most of the time when we think of Dr. King talking about justice and injustice, we connect it to the civil rights movement, and mostly we think in terms of racial injustice, but King was pretty clear. More often than not, when he talked about justice and injustice, he talked about what he called the giant triple threats of injustice. Racism, absolutely. But also excessive materialism. Greed. And he talked about militarism as a threat to justice. Excessive violence, maybe, be how you would think about that. And King would say, if we really are interested in a just society, we've got to tackle all three. They're woven together. You can't talk about one without talking about all three. And he was convinced we need to dismantle everything and rebuild it if we really want to see a just society. I remember when apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela became the president in South Africa, there were a lot of people close to Mandela in his ear saying, okay, now we've got the power, now it's time for us to flex our muscles. And, and all those people that have oppressed us for all these years, all these decades, now we can treat them the way they've been treating us all this time. And Mandela just refused. He insisted we cannot do that. We must not do that. We have to find a new way. There's got to be a better way. And we have a responsibility to not just do things the way they've been done, but to try to do things differently. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before. I think it's fascinating. It's thought-provoking. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, you, you see that there's something wrong. There's a problem in society. You can't fix it by using the same tools that created the problem in the first place. If you see that there's something wrong in society, you cannot fix it by using the same tools that created the problem in the first place. And you remember what Jesus did when he was growing up, before he turned 30 and started doing his ministry? Worked with his dad in a carpenter shop. Jesus knew a thing or two about tools. And what's the right tool for the job? Any job is possible if you just have the right tools. Jesus had tools in his tool belt, and he used them in ways no leader had ever used them before. I want you to watch the rest of this video the Bible Project people put together on agape love. And again, as you watch this, it's going to become pretty clear what's the power tool that Jesus used most. Take a look. For Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. 
Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this, while we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. There is a lot in there. An ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. I mean, I am so convicted when I watch that. I have so far to go when it comes to loving the people in my life, the people in this world, the way Jesus calls us to love. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. He's totally worth following. Martin Luther King Jr., following Jesus, comes to this conclusion, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. If you want to see justice at its best, power at its best, love at its best, where are you going to look? I think there's only one place, look to Jesus. Jesus, I'm absolutely convinced, the most powerful person who's ever lived. But he understood power in a completely different way than you and I think about power. Here's an example, Luke chapter 13. Again, if you have your Bibles, open up. Uh, Luke 13, there's a story that starts in verse 10. And Jesus goes to the synagogue for worship one weekend. And in the synagogue, Luke tells us there is a woman who has been bent double for 18 years. Uh, imagine the physical discomfort that woman has, unable to stand up straight for 18 years. But there's all kinds of discomfort that she's experiencing as well because in that cultural context, everybody would have believed, the faithful people of that synagogue would have believed this woman can't stand up straight because God is punishing her for a sin in her life. She's probably possessed by an evil spirit. And they would have shunned her, excluded her, stayed away from her. They would not have wanted anything to do with her. Jesus shows up and Jesus sees her. He does not look over her, which would be pretty easy to do for a woman who's bent double. He sees her, he notices her, 
has compassion on her, cares for her. Jesus touches her, and Luke says as soon as Jesus touches her, immediately she's able to stand up straight, and she starts praising God, which is what everybody in that room should have been doing. Everybody in that worship center should have been doing, but it's not what happens. Verse 14, the leader in charge of the synagogue, the guy with the power, The leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. He broke the rules. He broke the law. There are six days of the week for work, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord replied, you hypocrites. Each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water. This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? And then the story ends in verse 17. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I don't know about you, I don't often think of Jesus as somebody who humiliates another human being on purpose, but Luke says that's what happens in Luke 13. Jesus humiliated his opponents. Why? They're standing in the way of love. They're using their power to stand in the way of love. They have the power to do something, and this is true for all of us. If you have power to love, if you have power to right a wrong to do away with some kind of injustice, to bring justice into a a situation, and you do not do it, you are not learning the ways of Jesus. You are not walking in the ways of Jesus. Jesus made sure this woman had justice. He made sure she had enough healing, enough love, enough connection. By healing her, now she would have been welcomed back into community. It's really fascinating what Jesus is doing here when you stop and think about it. Out of love, out of love, Jesus, Jesus takes and he, he corrects the unjust enforcement of a law that's standing in the way of love. Let me say that again. Jesus uses love to correct the unjust enforcement of a law that was standing in the way of love. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement in this country did. Out of love, out of a desire to see justice, enough for everybody, they purposefully broke unjust laws that said, you can't sit there on the bus, you can't sit there in a restaurant, you can't use that drinking fountain, you can't use that toilet, here's all the hoops you have to jump through in order to be able to vote. They did it, why? They were following the commands of the Lord. Do good, seek justice. They were ushering in the kingdom of God as they did. So, Each one of you in this room has power. You have a sphere of influence. Some of you, it's a tiny sphere. Some of you, it's a pretty big sphere. Doesn't matter how big or small, what amount of power you think you have. The question for all of us is, what are you doing with the power that's been given to you? Are you using your power to stand in the way of love? Or are you using your power to create a more just society, a more just world? Are you using your power to create that ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love? 
Uh, first time Martin Luther King Jr. and those workers, they uh, marched to Montgomery. It ended in violence and brutality. 70 million people saw it on the nightly news. They interviewed King afterwards, and he basically asked the country, now what? Now what are you going to do? Are you going to turn away? Are you going to turn a blind eye to the injustices that your black brothers and sisters are living through? Or are you going to act? Are you going to love? Are you going to join us? A week later, they tried to march again, but when they got to the top of the bridge, King thought, something doesn't smell right. I think this is a trap, and they turned around. Two weeks later, two weeks later, they marched for the third time. And this time, those 500 initial uh, marchers were joined by 25,000 more marchers from every state in the nation. Students and housewives and members of the clergy joining with King and these civil rights workers, marching for justice, marching to make sure everybody had enough. Enough safety, enough provision, enough access. Uh, the government sent the assistant attorney general, a man by the name of John Doerr, to Selma, and his job was to protect Dr. King and the civil rights workers. And John Doerr begged King, don't do it, don't go, don't march. I cannot guarantee your safety. It is not safe. And Dr. King said, I'm sure you're right, but we've got to do it. We've got to march. We've got to usher in the kingdom of God, no matter how scary it might be. Take a look. I'm no different than anybody else. I want to live long and be happy. But I'll not be focusing on what I want today. I'm focused on what God wants. We're here for a reason, through many, many storms. But today, the sun is shining, and I'm about to stand in its warmth alongside a lot of freedom-loving people who've worked hard to get us here. I may not be with them for all the sunny days to come, but as long as there's light ahead for them, it's worth it to me. Thank you, John. Because, because 
before we sing our closing song. Lord, that's a good question. Where do we go from here? And so maybe the starting place is just to confess that more often than not, we choose comfort over doing what justice demands. I pray that you would help us be people who are true to the name of this place, that we would be people of hope, but that we would remember hope has a couple of beautiful sisters, righteous indignation and courage. So as we leave this place as people of hope, help us see what is not right in the world around us. And the Lord, give us the faith to act, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We will not do it perfectly. But with your help, maybe we can change. And maybe through us, you might bring about some of the change that you want in this world. We need your help. We ask for it because it's really scary. And a lot of times our fear can keep us from doing what you're calling us to do. So remind us of your perfect love, which casts out all fear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.